poker's legendary champions, next generation stars, and tireless ambassadors of the game, sharing their wisdom and guiding your journey to high achievement on the green felt. This is Chasing Poker Greatness with your host, Brad Wilson. Welcome, my dear friend, to the Chasing Poker Greatness podcast. As always, this is your host, the founder of ChasingPokerGreatness.com, Brad Wilson. And today's guest on this show is the author of A Girl's Guide to Poker and Poker Power teacher, Amanda Botfeld. In just a few minutes, you're going to learn how Amanda went from writing political letters for 30,000 subscribers to falling into the poker world directly following the 2016 presidential election. But first, if you're a long-term listener to Chasing Poker Greatness, you'll know that I believe the next quote-unquote poker boom will come from one of two sources. Online poker miraculously becoming legalized and regulated across the entire United States, or poker becoming more appealing to women. Number one is way beyond my control, and quite frankly, it feels like our country has some bigger fish to fry. Number two, though, represents an opportunity. The organization Amanda collaborates with, Poker Power, has a very simple mission that in the words of Nick Howard is doing the noble work. Their mission is to teach one million women confidence, strategic thinking, and decision-making skills through the game of poker. Now, I understand that seeing as only 5-10% to of my audience are females, that you're most likely a male. But that doesn't mean you don't have females in your life who may just fall in love with the beauty of playing cards if given the opportunity. So today, I'm going to challenge you to float the idea of playing some poker to some of the females in your life, whether they be your girlfriend, your friend, your spouse, your mom, or your sister. Tell them about Amanda's book, A Girl's Guide to Poker. Poker Powher, and also Maria Konnikova's book, The Biggest Bluff. may not seem like that big of a deal, but you could really make a large impact when it comes to growing and sustaining this amazing game of cards we all love so much. With that said, in the following episode, you're going to learn the surprising reason Amanda decided to invest her energy into playing cards, how she managed to land a coveted book deal with one of the largest poker publishers in the biz, and much, much more. So without any further ado, I bring to you the wise, witty, and clever Amanda Botfeld. Amanda, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you. Excited to be here. I'm very excited to have you here. And as these things typically go, I want to start out by asking you your story of how you got involved with playing cards. When did that start and what does your journey look like? Sure. So um, I'm from LA, but I was living in Washington, DC and I was working as a political writer, specialized in Middle Eastern foreign policy. And I'm I'm, going to cheat a little. Um, I read that you picked up poker from your dad. You played with your dad. Was this before, after uh, the political journey? Yeah. So I knew very, very basics on like a video poker level, how to play poker from my dad. And 
Um, so then I was working in DC. I was a political writer. I was writing a foreign policy newsletter for 30,000 subscribers. And they opened up the brand new MGM casino uh, right outside DC on the border of uh, Maryland. And I was like, awesome. I am going to be a rock star poker player like my father. It's going to be great. Why, and, why did that matter to you? Why was this like, why, were, why did you feel compelled to go to the new casino, play cards? My roommate, he invited me. Well, one, when it was opening up, like everyone was going. Um, but my roommate, um, he played blackjack and he's like, hey, let's check it out. Let's go. And I was like, sure, I can play poker. Or so I thought. And so we went together and, you know, I was so bad that I remember one of the first times. So this guy looks at me and he says, you played that hand terribly. And I said, really, how so? And he said, well, for starters, I could see your cards. <laughs> and, then, and then I was like, okay, okay. I mean, I need some help here. Um, and since this is a poker audience podcast, he was right. You know, I had like acing of clubs and I flopped the nut flush around. I just checked the whole thing. Uh, so I just did not really know how to play on the level that, you know, playing with my dad and my grandpa and my brother is like on New Year's. Um, it was a completely different ball game. I didn't know things like two pair could get counterfeited. I didn't even know what a C that was. I, didn't, I had no idea with betting. I just kind of knew what a straight was. And how did you feel leaving I was, that experience? motivated. I was really, really excited. And I loved the complexity of the game. And it reminded me a lot of my career. Because what I was doing in my career as a newsletter writer, um, is I was taking these really dense, complicated, big issues. And my job was to make them simple and punchy and put them into bullet points. Um, when I was interviewing for jobs, uh, I said, I view myself as a translator. Again, someone who can take the hard stuff simple. So I was like, awesome. I'm going to figure out how to play poker and I'm going to do the same thing. And my original vision for my book was I'm just going to do like a 30 minute how-to guide because I had no idea, you know, how difficult poker actually was. How did it uh, compare would, to foreign policy, uh, breaking down foreign policy and poker? You know, even though you're dealing on such a big scale with foreign policy consequences, when you're working in the field, you don't necessarily see the impact. So when you're like writing an article, you don't really know how that's going to affect anything. When you're playing poker, you see the immediate result and the immediate impact of your decisions, you know, on every street. And you see like, hey, I do X, this causes Y to happen. And so I felt like it was a very concentrated version of this kind of cause and effect game. Cat and mouse, right? It's a lot of cat and mouse. Was working with like Iran stuff, which the Iran deal was big at the time when I was working in politics. So again, it was more like cat and mouse and it's all about negotiating and it's all about all those different factors. What's your relative position to your opponent? What year was that? 2016. Um, to, uh, I was in DC during the election. I started working as a writer in uh, Mideast foreign policy right out of college in 2015. And I was doing it all through the election when I lived in D.C. and through 2017. Very nice. And yeah, this feedback, you, you get immediate feedback. To That's, your yes, you get immediate feedback. So even though obviously it's just your little poker hand and it's, you know, whatever stakes you're playing, like so let's say it's your hundred dollars. 
you feel, you know, you either win it or you lose it and you get to see the results immediately. It was very satisfying because it was like a little, you know, you, you almost felt like you were riding into an abyss. Like, is anyone, is this making any difference in the world? Right. And does that, is that a a big deal? Is that something that drives you? Absolutely. Um, The organization I was working for was a nonprofit. The one before that was a nonprofit. So uh, it's very important to me. Awesome. I, there, there's even this problem in poker as it relates to feedback in that feedback tends to happen on the river. And that's why in hand history reviews, somebody will bring a hand and they'll want to know what they should have done on the river. And like, this is where the, you know, the meme is fold pre, right? Like, because you don't always get immediate feedback on how you play a hand pre-flop and how that relates to the flop decision, the turn decision, and then the river decision. So even in poker, feedback isn't always immediate. Like you can make a bunch of bad preflop decisions and you don't actually see how they're compiling and snowballing um, over time because you, do, you know, there's no like buzzer where it's like you three bet queen jack off facing a, but, a button open from the big blind and it's like, you just lost some money here, right? Like they don't don't know that they, they basically, you just go on the result of the hand. So like, even in poker, there's this feedback problem. And I can't imagine on like a world scale where, you know, you're just sending, sending these emails out into the abyss of like, what happened? Did this do anything? Am I doing any good in the world? Uh, I could, I could see how that's a tough, you know, it's a, it's a tough thing to gauge. Yeah. It's a tough thing to gauge and you're just, you don't know whether or not you're making a difference in the world, right? Because you're not getting any feedback. So I can see where that's a sticking point for you. Yeah. And, you know, I had like one example where it was like really, really bad. And then one example is really, really good. I was writing about Syria and there was an article in the Washington Post and it was written by two doctors. And the article said, we're going to keep writing every day this week. And when we stopped writing, it's probably because we've died. And I remember they wrote like two or three and it didn't even get to Friday. And that was the Washington Post. Like my, the newsletter I was writing had 30,000 subscribers, but uh, <laughs> I, I can only even imagine how many the Washington Post has. And I was struck with that days. I mean, that was just chilling to me. Why did, so why was- did, it, why did it strike you so hard? that was my life's work. You know, we were just absolutely 24 seven, like the level of pressure in that job, even though I loved it was every day, the state department has a press briefing and there's a transcript that comes out two hours later for all the reporters to write, like, here's what the state department said. That was too long. So my job, my colleague and I, we would take a real time transcript. So like the reporter at like the associated press would have a rough idea of what they said. And then by the time their article comes out, they can just get the regular one and clean it up because that's how constant the pace was. And it's, that's where it was like, live, breathe, eat, you know, what is going on in the world and some of the biggest issues facing the planet. It was like nuclear destruction at the time. There was a lot going on with North Korea too. And it was like, ah, every day. And so poker was equally as immersive if not even more so. And when I went into poker, it was kind of like, I guess there were a lot of similarities or maybe it was just my personality type. 
put it in that same box. But as you said at the very beginning, I think you need to be obsessive to succeed at this game. For sure. And I, I guess I, I want to find the why, you know, why you chose poker to be obsessive about. I could, I could understand like the constant data, the constant news stories that are breaking that like you have to be on top of. It's just like an endless supply of information. Why, why poker? Why did you choose to immerse yourself in that world? Like, why did it matter to you? Absolutely. So I was like 23, 24 at the time. And I, you know, what most 23, 24 year olds were doing was like guys and dating and clubs and bars. And I had just gotten a piece published in the Los Angeles Times about kind of at the height of dating apps where it was still new and everyone was on their like second or third date. And I just like went on like a million dates and I was like, you know, I'm all this put together person and I'm going to find Mr. Put Together and it's going to be, you know, fantastic. Easy peasy. And easy peasy, right? Easy peasy. I'm going to move to DC, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. Right. Um, and it was awful. And I was so burned out by it and I was so exhausted. I can't not eight. ask you about why it was so awful. Why was it so awful? Because it's so disappointing because it was like, you get so many almost, right? Like some, like so many times you're like, Hey, I think I can make something work with this person, but then you're not really a match. You know, you have so many like false starts, I guess is the word I'm looking for. And I was like, I am done with this. And then I also wasn't the greatest, you know, what I want to talk about. Be like, what do you do for work? I'll be like, well, Iran's got these intercontinental <laughs> ballistic missiles. Um, yeah. And so it was like, it was so draining. And then I discovered poker and I was like, hey, I can go here on a Saturday night instead. I can do this and I can still be social. You know, it's from uh, across the country. It's from Los Angeles. I didn't really know anyone except my roommate um, who I met in D.C. I didn't know anyone going in. And it was all of a sudden I got to, you know, have something to do on a Saturday night that was mentally stimulating. I didn't feel like socially isolated in my house or not knowing anyone across the world. And being in D.C., you had some pretty cool conversations, too, because there were a lot of people who were uh, in my field who, you know, weren't like, DC has a problem where there's not a lot of people that are in their mid late twenties. There's a lot of like students and interns and grad students. And there's a lot of like older people. Uh, I didn't find that many like 30 year olds. Right. Um, so, uh, you know, you go to a poker table and I was just engaged in like really, really neat conversations. So I would say for me, it started very much as a social experience in addition to being like mentally challenging and I wanted to master it. And as you're immersing yourself, getting away from all these horrible, horrible men <laughs> that you're going out on dates with, <laughs> um, what was your process for improving? How did that go? And also like leading into your book, this yeah. is a lot of steps here. You know, I, I like to know more about. Sure. So I, the first thing I thought to do, and my, my official job title was research associate. So I figured poker was something I could learn from a book. And I called three different bookstores in DC and they all thought I was crazy. And so I had to, I found a Barnes and Noble 
at a strip mall in Virginia, 45 minutes away. And that was the only place where I could find poker books. Why no Amazon? <laughs> oh, I wasn't paying. Oh, and I also, I wanted, like, I did order some on Amazon, but uh, I wanted to kind of be able to browse through, get a feel. And so I picked up um, two poker books and they were way too difficult for me to understand. They were like math textbooks. I'm an English writer person. I am not a math person. Um, and that's when I was like, okay, I want to be able to write my own book. And what really made the difference for me is online, I found a preflop chart. I think it was from 888 of like which flashcards to play preflop. And then I found some other flashcard deck and I made my own by hand. I made 180 flashcards with color-coded stickers of like, what's the earliest position you can raise X hand. So like, it would say like queen jack on one side. It would say like queen jack, oh, queen jack off on one side. And then on the back side, it would say like, you know, hijack. Or, and then I would just drill myself, drill myself. And I was, again, I was so bad when I first started. I remember I called two preflop, like there were two all-ins in front of me, preflop. And I called with Jack four of diamonds thinking that was the right thing to do. <laughs> so like I was, and I it was like mind blowing to me that I look at this preflop chart and not only do you fold Jack four suited, if two people are all in in front of you, you don't even play it at all. Like that was just like, wow, wow. I had no idea. And um, I was studying this deck on my lunch breaks. And especially when you're playing like entry-level stakes and, you know, daily tournaments, preflop is so much like it's, it's almost the game is preflop. It's just, you know, having king, queen when your opponent has king seven. And it was, I studied these flashcards religiously. And then three months later, I entered my first poker tournament and I won first place. <laughs> and then... Yeah, and then instant gratification. What and it was really exciting too because you know this one guy, he looked at me straight in the eyes. He's bragging about all his tournament wins, right? For this like, you know, daily one twenty tournaments, not even on hand and mob kind of thing. But whatever, he's like bragging about all his tournaments, and he's like, and what he says is, he looks me straight in the eyes and goes, "You're bad at tournaments," and he's like, "You should stick to cash games." And seven hours later, him and I were the top two. (laughs) and he was trying to make all these deals way in his favor and i was like this is my first tournament i'm not chopping uh and it's like a it's almost like a dream you the guy is like talking trash seven hours before and then you two get heads up for the title how much did it mean to you extra to beat that dude oh my gosh it meant the world i didn't show my cards the entire tournament and then I was like against him and our second to last hand, I decided to bluff him and I showed it. I was just like, this was, it was very <laughs> satisfying. It was very, very satisfying. But yeah, so um, then I was hooked, right? <laughs> um, so I entered my first tournament. I won first place. Uh, three months later, I was the number seven highest ranked uh, daily tournament player at the MGM Casino and MGM National Har- Harbor in Maryland. And then a few months after that, um, I signed a book deal. That's a book. So it was all in the course of about a year. Yeah, that, that's a real quick progression. How many players are in that pool? 
So like there uh, were about 90 to 100 and I was just playing the daily tournaments like crazy. And it was funny because I had this like in November. So I started playing poker in like February. Right. And uh, in November, they were having this $3,000 buy-in event, like a $3,000 buy-in tournament. But if you could be like one of the top tournament players, then they would give you a ticket. So like I was investing like all my time and energy into playing all these tournaments. Um, Eventually I did win um, a satellite to this event. I was like, now I've really made it. And at the table next to me was uh, Joe McKeon, right? And I went from, that was less than the course of a year to playing this like high stakes, you know, big deal tournament. And then this like absolute fish knocked me out in the first hour. (laughs) It was like horrible. He like, he he, like called like an all in for an entire starting set. He just couldn't fold ace king. I had two pair and he just hit runner, runner. See, your first story about winning the first tournament that you entered, that didn't sound like poker to me. That That's the poker that I know and love. You wait all that time, you invest all that energy, then you get smashed in the face by a fish straight away. Oh, straight away. Absolutely. No, I, I, yeah, beginner's luck. Um, I fully believe in that. You know, my, my specialty is teaching beginners, beginners to, you know, somewhat intermediate, there, if you know, if you want advanced poker coaching, I'm not your person. Um, there are plenty of people that are much better, but my job, you know, I view myself as like, again, a translator, making poker accessible, friendly, fun. It's what I want my book to be. And I now teach uh, classes for absolute beginners with the organization Poker Power, as in Pow Her H E R, and it's incredible how lucky they get. It's like I, I just just always because I'm always dealing with beginners, and it's like wow. <laughs> John, I wanted to ask you why you decided to invest in a preflop bootcamp. Everything that you had done with me to that point, or I had heard you do, had impressed me. I loved the podcast. I accidentally ended up in the poker power hour and loved that. And then I took coaching and then you recommended the bootcamp. And at first I didn't think it was, you know, something that would be that valuable. But I was like, everything else has been amazing. So I signed up and then it just blew me away. And what about bootcamp blew you away? Like it started off slow. Like I'm learning these ranges and I'm not even understanding what you're talking about. And then all of a sudden, as I start to understand what we're doing with the three bets, the four bets, all of a sudden it just kind of hit me. And I was like, oh my God, how do I not know this stuff? This is amazing. The more I studied them, I started to understand why they were constructed sometimes. Like, I'd be like, that's why that's like that. And that would lead to more revelations and just a better understanding of poker in general. Do you have any interesting takeaways from your boot camp experience? The most interesting thing about the boot camp, it's a pre-flop boot camp, but I feel like it's done as much for my post game as it did for my pre-game just because I'm not in as many awkward and bad situations as I found myself in. You know, when we were doing coaching before the boot camp, we couldn't get through 10, 15 minutes of tape without finding mistake after mistake. And then once we did the boot camp, it solved 
problems on the back end as well. I know you've studied for a thousand hours this year. How do you think boot camp compares to your other poker study? Oh, it's crazy. The boot camp is probably the most important thing I've done all year out of everything. I would give anything to go back and to, to know that stuff 10 years ago. I can't imagine how successful I'd be right now if I had known that stuff. And I thought the boot camp was so valuable that I literally insisted you take more money from me and paid you more for the boot camp because I was blown away. I just thought the price was too cheap. And it's changed my game in ways that I, I can't even explain to you. If you'd like to join the next round of Preflop Bootcamp, which starts on the last Saturday of every month, head to ChasingPokerGreatness.com slash bootcamp to lock up your spot. One more time, that's ChasingPokerGreatness.com slash bootcamp. So you went from beginning the game, beginning your journey, 10 months down the line, you're battling in a 3K. Did you have any nerves? How was it playing the actual 3K? Did it feel different than the daily tournaments? Honestly, it was really soft. (laughs) The only reason why I played that hand with that guy is because I played with him at home games before. And um, it was like, it was not nearly as difficult as I expected it to be. And yet I was out immediately. Um, but I, I expected there to be more of a skill jump and there wasn't. Yeah. That's coming from someone that played a lot of high stakes cash at commerce in LA. I have only played like one tournament in the last 10 years, probably. I don't really play tournaments that much, but I went to Cherokee to meet with a friend of mine that I hadn't seen in a while. And they're actually, I I played a bunch of cards in Chattanooga, Tennessee, which is a couple hours away from Atlanta. And there were just a ton of like home game guys going to Cherokee for that trip. So I was like, okay, I'll jet over there, say hi to a bunch of people I haven't seen in years at this point and played their 1700. And it was mind-blowing the level of play was mind-blowing to me coming from like a high stakes cash experience to this of like we're seven hours in and there's like five limpers every hand and i'm like is this like real life right now like the blinds are 400 800 and like guys are just limping around the table (laughs) like this is this is pretty bizarre um but yeah i think as it relates to live poker like the skill levels are just low and there's going to be especially low when you're talking about like a, a location that's geographically fenced in, you know, the top crushers in the world are not going to fly into DC to play a three K. It just doesn't make like logistical sense. Right. So you get these higher buy-in tournaments that are just especially weak. I would say especially weak would be the right word. Um, the right way to describe it. I think what was more significant about it is for me, it was a marker. Like here I started this poker journey and it was like, I've made it. Yeah, for sure. So that was my, my goal. And I was like, wow, I'm going to play this. And I was, I was so obsessed with this tournament. So I entered two satellites and I, I got two tickets to it. So one was like the cash equivalent, but I was like obsessed with this. Like, you know, I, I wasn't making vision boards anymore. But if I had, I would have made a collage, you know, uh-huh. <laughs> like, 
<laughs> like this, this was going to be like my, um, coming out party. And it was, um, but it was cool. And it was, you know, having like one of the winners of the world series of poker on the table next to it. You know, I grew up with my dad always watching poker and we have, um, an exercise machine in our TV room and he'd always like to work out to poker. And I remember when I was little, I thought it was the most boring thing ever. I was like, why are you watching this? I'm with the little too. <laughs> I'm with the little version of yourself. Like working out while watching while watching a final table play down is like the last thing I would want to do. I think. Yeah, and the funny thing is, um, now that like I'm pretty deep in the weeds of the poker world, and I've you know read quite a few books and been very involved, I'm actually really impressed by the level of play of my dad. You know, he, he's just a recreational player, but he plays 5'10", and he can hold his own. And I'm like, that's pretty impressive. Yeah, so, that's really uh, impressive. Yeah, yeah. So um, you could say I had a good teacher. But uh, now now he's sweet. Now we, we do it together. And uh, so where does the book come in? So, like, you, you play this tournament. How do you get connected with D&B Publishing? Like, how did that go down? Sure. So I had, a, I had this idea for a book, right, this little – mini guide I'd written like on a plane going back and forth LA to DC and I was kind of meeting people in the poker world and someone he used to write um, for some of the poker news outlets and he was like why don't you just email the poker publishers from books you already read and see if they want it and so I went on Google I typed in poker book publishers and I emailed the first result and then I went on Amazon and I typed in poker book and I emailed the first result for a publisher and they both wanted it, which is pretty <laughs> extraordinary. It's pretty good. Especially now, because I'm trying to like do my second book, which is unrelated to poker. And uh, oh my gosh, it's difficult. <laughs> but so, but it was such, you know, I was like, can I just send you this little mini manuscript? And it was like the first publisher, he took notes on it. He compared it to Legally Blonde. I was like, how does a guy that like edits, you know, publishes gambling books know about Le- Legally Blonde and Elle Woods, but great. And then the DMB pub, um, poker who I went with, they're like, you're like the Bridget Jones of poker. And I felt like they so captured me and uh, I loved working with them. So I, I ultimately ended up going with DMB and I only have great things to say about it's a pretty good hit rate, two for two with the major poker, major poker publishers. It's kind of funny. It reminds me of when I originally got involved with getting paid to make poker training videos. Mm-hmm. I was just making these videos. It actually it, it went down kind of in a silly way where I got like uh, Camtasia on my laptop and I was like, oh, I like this. Let's just see what I can do. And I like grabbed my screen and just made like a 45-minute training video I uploaded it to YouTube knowing nothing about nothing about nothing. I've been a pro for like 10 years, but to me, it's like the anonymous cash games. It's like what makes me special. I just show up and play and win and I have a database and like I have good results, but like who's going to want to watch this? Like who cares? Um, Because I'm not going to watch it, right? Like I didn't care at that point to like watch um, these kind of dry training videos. And so I uploaded it to YouTube Nothing happened. Eventually, like six months later, somebody commented on it about how they really liked it. They watched a lot of videos. They never make it through 45 minutes, but this one they watched from start to finish. And if I kept making them, that 
they think that it could be a thing. And just that one rogue comment was like, oh, wow, maybe I'll make a couple more of these. Like, I don't even know how they found it. Like I, like I said, it was like in the automotive section of YouTube, like trying to get their brakes changed and <laughs> ran across a poker training video. But um, then I reached out to uh, the, the card runner CEO. He was hanging out on like the Reddit forums. Mm -hmm. I sent him a message, shot him my video. And he's like, yeah, we want you as a coach. Well, we're willing to pay you X, Y, and Z amount. And that, that was how my poker coaching and poker training career got started. Just one message to the right guy who's like, yeah, I want to do it. And then, you know, that's, uh, it's funny that one person never responds. That one person never leaves a comment. I'm probably just still grinding anonymous, anonymously, uh, not making content and not doing coaching. So it's crazy how just putting yourself out there, reaching out, uh, can sometimes change everything. Yeah. I mean, when I identify as a, a writer first and a poker player second, and what I really saw is what I could bring to the table was coming from that writer background, coming from politics made simple. I can do poker made simple. You know, I kind of boil things down into bite-sized bullet points and make it fun. And there's cheesy jokes, you know, but you know, when I was 23, I got an article published in the wall street journal, which was really, really uh, meaningful. But what people don't see behind the scenes is like for almost the entire year prior, I was like every other Friday night, I was like writing my thoughts, senior year of college. And I would just blast out these op-ed articles to op-ed at New York Times, op-ed at Wall Street Journal, op-ed at LA Times. And I would just be submitting it, submitting it almost every weekend. And I would never hear back. And then it was like all of a sudden I heard back from like, features editor or the opinion section editor at the wall street journal. And he's like, great, we're going to run your piece tomorrow. <laughs> and, I like, and I was like, yeah. what? Um, and you just never know what's just going to hit. It's almost like, you know, playing a tournament, you're going to play a million tournaments, a million tournaments, and you just never know which one it's all of a sudden going to be like, Hey, that worked out. And you, and you win the tournament. You had a, yeah. Volume. In poker, you had, you had a good angle though, right? Like you're, yes. you know, you're a girl, so you want to write the girl's guide. I assume at that time, there's probably not that many books like as an entry point to females who want to start learning how to play poker. So it was like a cool unexplored angle that I'm sure appealed to the publishers. And tell me about the process of writing the book. What was the goal and how did that go? Yeah. You know, what my publishers they commented on because they, you know, DNB poker, they publish a lot of poker books. A lot of them are very um, technical and for really advanced players. And, you know, they commented on the voice in mine and like how, you know, if you read my book, you know, it's not just a substance, but it's style. Right. I tried when I was writing my book, almost wanted to be like a comedy skit in a way where it's like, boom, boom, punchline. So whenever I was conveying a concept, it would just be like, you know, boom, boom, punchline. So I would say like, you have, here's what's called the flop. The flop is the first three cards that the dealer deals out. You want to know the word flop. You want to memorize it better than your uh, favorite 90s song. You know, bye, 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 flop, flop, flop. Next concept. So it was just, it was, um, 
it was almost more taxing to write the jokes, uh, but it was, it was fun. <laughs> right. And, uh, so I was writing it and once I was able to kind of hammer out an outline, it went pretty smoothly. And my book is kind of like mini chapters. So most quote unquote chapters are around like 800 words, like the size of a, a normal article that you'd read. So it's quick, it's punchy, there's quizzes. Uh, what really, and I, and I finished it in a few, it was less than six months, right. signed the book deal like in May. And I think it was done in November. It's not bad. Um, it's not a bad turnaround. Yeah. Well, I had a lot of time to focus on it. Because uh, after the election, a few months after that, my whole department got laid off, what became irrelevant. Um, and so I was like, let me focus on poker. And I was decided to write the book or, I, um, you know, I signed the contract. And so I was almost writing it full time. I, I empathize with the making it punchy, making jokes and making it making poker strategy entertaining because yeah. I, I write a daily newsletter and I read a bunch of books on copywriting and improving and being, uh, it's like infotainment, right? Like yes, informative, but also entertaining at the same time. And like in the beginning, my newsletter was like very dry because it's like poker strategy, you can't help but be dry. <laughs> it's like so clinical and like analyzing the data points and like you get bogged down in math. And um, it's really taken a lot of effort for me to remove like the hard teaching aspect of the daily newsletter and try to condense it in a way that's consumable, but eyes don't just glaze over immediately when they read like the first sentence, right? It's got to be entertaining right. at the same time, which is like a, a really tough um, balancing act when you're trying to write about poker specifically. Oh, absolutely. But it's a fun challenge. Um, you know, when I, whenever you say something's funny, it doesn't sound very funny. Whenever I like want to describe my book to people, I just kind of like show them the back cover. So like the first uh, few sentences, it's, so you want to play poker. Maybe it's the cash. Maybe it's the challenge. Maybe you're turned on by guys in hoodies and sunglasses. (laughs) You know, this is the, this book is handier than your high school cheat sheet kind of thing. So it's like, you just kind of get it, the tone, the punch right there. The funny thing is I probably spent a lot of the effort is I originally there was going to be a section on gambling history, which then would lead into poker. Right. And a, that section got cut, but I spent so long researching it and it was so fascinating. Like George Washington kept a card playing log. His biggest poker night was at Annapolis for 14 pounds. And uh, the state of Pennsylvania was given over to repay gambling debt. Napoleon loved blackjack. And we have all those laws that separate games of chance from games of skill from him. And so I was writing this like really extensive gambling history. And my favorite joke, the entire book was in there. And it was um, during the Wild West, women were actually running gambling houses and working as dealers and, you know, setting up operations. And I said, you know, and especially in the gold rush in, you know, San Francisco. And they, and I said, women were finally working alongside the men, but certainly not as gold diggers. <laughs> oh, that's my favorite line in the book, but it got cut. <laughs> you know, what's funny about that is I've mentioned on Twitter a couple of times that one thing that's like my dream project is I would love to, are you familiar with the podcast lore? I'm not so it's basically a it's folklores. It's Aaron Mankey is 
telling stories about folklores and like these famous folklores over time. He's got, it's heavily researched and it's, you know, narrative driven. So there's like, there's stories, there's segues at every point. And I've wanted to make an episode of this show as like a poker folklore type of episode where it like, you know, it's a situation like George Washington or whatever it is describing the scene, the setting, what's going on and how poker relates to it. And then segueing to like the next little short story um, this is like a long-term <laughs> fantasy of mine that has yeah. like never gotten off the ground. And you're like saying that you did all this research in this very specific obscure area of like poker lore. Where did yes. all your research go? What happened to it? I still have it. Um, I still have it written. It's It literally starts from, you know, studies that monkeys prefer jackpots you know, and we'll play like double or nothing if you give them the opportunity to. So it starts from like our biology to like hunters and gatherers that, you know, they would roll stones when they were like, should we hunt, you know, should we go north or should we go east? And they believed it was God giving them like directions. And then it just goes on and on and on and on and on and on until, you know, you get to the moneymaker boom and, uh, the, you know, the ex- poker explosion and the, where we are now, where it's like Vegas and all, and all those things. So it was literally from like beginning of time <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to like, where's poker going? You know, can computers beat people kind of thing, evolution. Uh, and I interviewed, if there's a very good ho- um, poker history book, or not, not poker history, a uh, gambling history book called Rolling Stones, I believe. And I did, um, interview the guy who wrote that book here's what i want to hear i want to hear like the story of wild bill hickok living in deadwood and like what's going on in his life as he's like going to the saloon to play this game of poker like that's what that's what i need i need that story even if it's like half fictional and half real um like if if you wrote that i would read it like promote it with your name like i just i want one episode that is like this before I die and stop interviewing people because it's something that like, I don't know. I don't know if anybody else cares or if it appeals to anybody in the world, but me, but like, I want it for me personally, because I think it's just so cool. This intersection of like poker and history and like even words in the English language and popular sayings, how they're all related to poker, like playing fast and loose with the facts. Like people don't, realize how much poker terminology is just in our day-to-day dialogues and like just exploring some of those things that is uh, appeals to me in uh, a major way oh yeah you hear all in all the time the most striking fact on like a deeper what does this mean for us as humanity level was that during the civil war soldiers from the north and the south at night they would cross enemy camps and they would play cards together just fascinating, you know, like how to, that's so many levels and so many layers there to unpack. Oh, there's just so many, there's, there's stories right there, right? Like uh, this guy who's at night and he wants to play cards and you know, his buddies, he's going to try to kill his buddies tomorrow, but like, let's get in some hands. (laughs) Let's play some cards Uh, tonight. Right. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. These are super compelling stories in my opinion that I think like need an outlet. They need an outlet to uh, be created and released and, this is like a, a whole nother book in its own right. Um, yeah. All right. So 
you got the book, you wrote the book. What was the result? Did you have anything unexpected happen after the publishing of the book? Did your life change at all? What happened? Um, did anything happen? You know, COVID happened. <laughs> so it was like, uh, you know, the book came out in January, 2020. And the world shut down about six weeks later. So um, it wasn't, you know, like I was supposed to do, like have a book signings at the WSOP and we're supposed to do all this and hopefully we can do it all next year. So it's kind of been like undercover a little bit. Uh, my publishers say it's a little bit like a soft launch this year and we'll try to do like a hard launch next year. I would say probably the best thing, I guess, that happened like during it is um, I met my boyfriend at a poker table. And so that was pretty exciting. See, you didn't need to, didn't need to use the apps. You just, Oh, I know it, it was like, it's so true what they say. Once you like give up on it and you're like, finally not looking, you know, it was like, I deleted all those apps. And then, uh, and I was actually kind of resistant. Like I met him at a poker table, but um, he was from Ireland. He was just visiting, visiting the U S and, you know, he had a really good line. Because uh, I was like, I don't, you know, we don't need to go out. You're a professional poker player. It's fine. And he was like, there are more important things in life than poker. Which I was like, mind blown. <laughs> and still, and still we didn't get off the ground. Because traveling, and then um, it was my, a few weeks, three weeks later, it was my first time in Vegas since knowing how to play poker. And uh, of all the card rooms in Vegas, I walked into a casino and there he was. Yeah, it's cosmic. Yeah, and so I, I say in my book, he, my, the last chapter of my book, even though 90% of my book is how-to, the last chapter of my book, I kind of talk about the elephant in the room. I'm a girl. What's it like being at a girl at a guy's poker table? And it's called Your Guide to Dating Poker Players. Very nice. I I love the story, right? Like, I love the backstory. I want to know, you know, when somebody's writing to me, like, who is this person? What are they struggling with? Like, why did they do this thing? When you know the why... It just makes it so much more powerful of a, of a story. And I guess it solved my problem. You know, my problem when I was playing poker is like, I was so frustrated with dating and my love life. And I just didn't know how to relate to guys. And I didn't know how to talk to guys and be comfortable. And then being at a poker table, you know, 12 hours at a time, give or take, it's kind of like a crash course. <laughs> because, you know, before I was talking on such a superficial level, like you go on a date and you're like, you like vanilla ice cream. Oh my gosh, I like vanilla ice cream. But that's not how people really talk. It's not like, hey, do I like sitting with this person? You know, do I like being in their presence? Like, how is it when you're not always on? How is it when it's four in the morning and no one looks good? You know, when you're just sitting at a poker table, being in someone's space. And so that was kind of the problem I had going into poker is I was like so awkward and jumpy um, around guys. And you know, here I am, we're, we're living together a few years later, and uh, there was a happy ending. Congratulations. There's nothing Thanks. that, you know, you were immersing yourself in poker, but you're also surrounding yourself by the male, uh, <laughs> the male gender 24 hours a day. And that's, you know, some immersive research into how we operate in our psyche and you getting comfortable around us. So Absolutely. Yeah. It's like guys boot camp crash course. There you go. Win-win. Um, no pun intended. 
You've heard me talk early and often about how improving your awareness while you're playing cards so that you make better decisions in the moment and notice trouble spots that merit deeper consideration is one of the most valuable things you can do to make more money on the felt. In my conversation with the only four-time WPT main event champion ever, Darren Elias, he told me that his ability to shut out all of the distractions in the world and fully focus on making great decision after great decision is his superpower he most attributes to his success. And you cannot improve your awareness at the tables without being fully present. When you learn how to stay fully in the moment on the green felt, you can finally have a clear path to becoming the absolute best version of yourself, which leads me to Jason Sue. Jason is one of the foremost authorities on the planet when it comes to playing poker with presence. As a matter of fact, he even wrote the book on it. Here's a direct quote from Nick Howard at Poker Detox on Jason's ability to help you stay focused. Quote, Jason's work is a new paradigm in poker and performance. End quote. And these aren't just empty words. Nick has put his money where his mouth is by hiring Jason to coach up the Poker Detox crew. And as a loyal listener of Chasing Poker Greatness, you know by now that I would not be promoting anything I didn't 100% believe would improve your poker skills and your life. So if you want to master your emotions and perform at your peak with presence while doing battle in the arena, You'd be doing yourself a grave disservice if you didn't check out Jason's work at PokerWithPresence.com. One final time, that's PokerWithPresence.com. So let's segue to the lightning round, which doesn't have to be super lightning-y, but it's uh, some prepared questions that I typically go with. What does your process look like today? for regularly improving your game? I would, well, you know, my boyfriend and I, we subscribe to pokercoaching.com. So we'll go through all their modules. And I think a lot of it is, especially during COVID where you're playing online and you're able to actually analyze the hands, it's kind of going through all of that. So a lot of pokercoaching.com. Uh, easy, easy plug for me, by the way, by the time this video gets released, I'll have done my first webinar and made a bunch of quizzes for pokercoaching.com. So yeah, I'll be pokercoaching.com. Um, I like to watch a lot of streams too. Um, I watch uh, Matt Affleck. I think is very good. Yeah. He's a good dude. He's also been on the show. Really, really genuine, good dude that loves poker, just loves poker. When you think about joy in your career playing cards, What's the first memory that comes to mind? My father and I. So I was starting to play poker, right? I came back home to LA and it was the first tournament that we played together. It was a daily tournament, the house or casino for like Memorial day. And, um, unfortunately he got eliminated, but I got to the final table and he was like railing me, right? Like me against all these guys. And there was like, and we were all talking about a chop, but there was this one kid who looked like he just turned 21, like a backstreet boy, right? And he was the shortest stack and he's like, I'm not going to chop. We're like, fine. Long story short, I eliminate him. I make this big call for almost like, we would have flipped stacks, right? With King High in front of my dad. And I was right. And then when I like the moment of turning over the cards with like my dad there and being like, I did it, dad. 
it was like, you know, and then, and then, um, we chopped, but I like, you know, I got the first equivalent and it was like, it reminded me of being on my high school track days. You know, I felt like I could just kind of like be there, make my dad proud. Uh, that was so, so exciting. And I think that's more the word joy that you asked. For sure. And it's, it's having a shared experience in a hobby or a venture that means a lot to both of you and performing um, in a moment of pressure when you needed to and yeah. calling, calling with King high, right? Like it's a lot easier to be proud of calling with King high than like getting aces and stacking the short. Oh yeah. <laughs> no, it felt like it felt like a measure of skill. And I remember so, I was so worried in this moment. I like turned to the guy next to me. It was one of these like retired old guys that plays poker every day. Cause I, I mostly just play the daily tournaments and who had played before. And I said, just for the record, I was like, I'm calling thinking I have the best hand. <laughs> I just wanted to make it crystal clear because, you know, sometimes you call and you're like, I don't know if I'm beat or if I'm not. And he went like all in on the turn. I had no pair, no draw. But I just I thought he had a draw. So Yeah, you just got to give him the one chipper. Just yeah, turn in the one chip and be like, <laughs> there you go. Like this money's I don't need to put my stack in because it's all coming to me anyway. You know, <laughs> um, what the, the opposite question. Uh, when you think about pain in your career playing cards, what's the first memory that comes to mind? It's almost like a cumulative memory of those nights where it's like you play for a billion hours and you just can't get unstuck. <laughs> you know, when you're just also in the Uber car on the way home and you're just like, damn, <laughs> you know, you just feel kind of like that, like pit of your stomach. And, you know, that's where the questioning comes in did I get unlucky or is there something that I'm doing wrong? And you almost don't know which is worse, right? (laughs) I know which was, I know which is worse. (laughs) It's the, it's the doing things wrong. That's the one there. Yeah. But well, that's where, but like what feels worse, like you're like, am I cursed? And I just can never have any luck in the world or, Oh my gosh, you know, are there some things that, you know, I'm, I'm really coming up short in. Yeah. The, the, my main fear for me is that I went to sleep one night and just woke up and forgot everything that I knew about playing cards. And maybe I've just been getting lucky for the last 15 years because poker can beat you down emotionally and psychologically to where like, just because you make 10 correct decisions does not mean that you get 10 positive results. You could get 10 negative results for each of those decisions. And then it's like, okay, do I know what I'm doing? Like, is this really, do I need to hunker down and learn more? Like, should I alter my strategy? Like, I think this is where a lot of the like, folks don't have a good anchor for their strategy. And then when they get this negative feedback, they start bouncing around from training site to training site and book to book, just trying to be like, how do I, how do I make this smooth sailing? When the reality is, this is not a venture that is, smooth sailing 24 seven. There are some very stormy nights where you don't know if you're going to make it out alive. You just got to trust the process and trust your ability. And eventually you make it out to the other side. Absolutely. Um, Amanda, imagine there's a carbon copy of yourself who's just getting into the game. If you could sit that person down, give them some wisdom for their poker journey, what would you say? Uh, I'd probably say to be a little bit more street smart, to be honest. Um, What does that mean, street smart? You know, I was like, 
every single person that like wanted to talk to me, I was like, sure. I bet they're like this super nice, awesome person where in the poker world, there are some, some uh, shadier characters. And I think I was pretty naive. You know, I was like, you know, kind of like, Hey, hi, you know, I'm Amanda. And, uh, I think now going back, um, I'd probably be a little bit more guarded, which I learned over time. And what do you mean by guarded? Like, what does that entail? Like, do we have like a tangible example? Tangible example. Do not have a tangible example, but like, you know, um, I'm probably gonna like wear my hoodie more. Whereas before I'd probably just wear like, you know, something like I'm wearing a flower V-neck right now. Um, And uh, I think I was just, um, you know, you have to be careful because like a lot of times, you know, I say being a woman at a poker table is like, you know, that expression, if you were the last woman on earth, last, if you were the last guy or girl on earth, it's kind of like that experience, <laughs> uh-huh. right? So there are a lot of, you know, people um, who are just going to want to like talk to you and like, hey, let's go over here and hey, like, let's go to the bar and let's do this. And I think, uh, you know, now I'm, I mean, obviously now I'm in the relationship, but even still, I think just kind of being a little bit more self-protective. Yeah, it's tough. I Because females do not make up a large percentage of, you know, the poker demographics, the poker community, like in the cash games that I've played, it's fairly rare. And the times that there is one at the table, it is like, I can't even describe what it's like. It's just so different just people like walking by, Hey, how's it going? How are you doing? Like, I mean, hundreds of people all congregating around like the one female in the room. It's like, wow, (laughs) this is, uh, this is a weird experience for me. And I'm just like observing it from afar. I can't imagine being in the middle of it myself. Exactly. It's like, right. I, that's a good point. Um, you know, I was so social and chatty and then I would find that like, Every time I sat down at a poker table, there would be like five people being like, hi, Amanda, hi, Amanda, you know, let's talk. And it would just be like, it was so much and required so much energy. For sure. For sure. Yeah. Um, if you could gift all poker players one book to read, what would it be and why? Mine? Because uh, <laughs> I need to, because I'd like to... Um, make some sales. More, make some sales. Yeah. I want to sell some more copies. <laughs> Um, and, you know, I'm very, very passionate about making poker accessible to all people. I see my book as friendly. Um, if I had to pick another book, when I was first starting, um, I was, there's on Amazon, there's a series called the Kill Phil series. Um, I know that like Elkie was a contributor and it was one of the only books that I could somewhat follow because I remember it just here was the advice it said if you have a two pair or better go all in and and then it, and I also remember it said if you're ever at a final t-, like it was just basic right it was like um I mean there's more advanced chapters too but it had some advice for people that were actually at my level who thought you should call them all in with jack three suited or jack four suited right and I remember it said, if you're heads up at a final table and it's only the two of you, 
just go all in every hand <laughs> because even it would be great because then your skill edge, it's like a coin flip, right? You're 50, 50. Whereas if you're at a playing against an actual experienced player, they're going to have a better, a larger edge on you. So that That's, was actually pretty decent advice. That is great um, advice. Actually. It was actually, you know, it was pretty good advice. And when I teach, you know, my poker classes, um, cause all the time they want to talk about shorthanded play and they have no idea of relative hand strength. So, um, go all in because then you're, you're almost flipping. Yeah. I remember back in the day, uh, Daniel Negreanu was playing heads up against Miami John Cernudo, which is a name I have not said in quite some time in the poker world. And I remember a young Daniel Negreanu forcing the action pre because he thought John Cernudo had a skill edge and basically trying to reduce the skill gap through aggression and making it more of a crapshoot, which that is a yep. good way to minimize the skill gap. You said that fantastically. <laughs> yes. <Appreciate that>. yes. <laughs> I might talk about poker a lot. It might be a thing that I do in my day to day. I got that. If you could wave a magic wand and change one thing about poker, what would it be? I mean, I have like a really nerdy answer. Um, and that would be like, cause I, I play in LA and the rake structure is really bad. Uh, you know, there's no really profitable entry level poker game. Like they're just like the drop cause it's a drop rather than a rake is $7. Yeah. And the smallest game you can buy in is for $40 with that $7 drop. So that's the technical way of saying I would love poker to be, um, more beginner friendly more accessible. And um, I'd also like it legalized online throughout the United States. Yeah. If you could add on one little minor detail to, to your magic wand waving, I guess legalizing and regulating it for the United States is like a minor detail. <laughs> it's funny because the, one of the organizations I worked for, one of the nonprofits, the number one funder, is also one of the number one um, funders against uh, the regulation against the legalization of online poker. Sheldon, yeah, like Sheldon, yeah, because he like owns all the casinos, and so, he, but he was like also like funding, you know, politics. Yeah, it's uh, that guy. Oh, that guy. Yeah, I. I have lots of thoughts about that period in the world and life, and the main thought that I always come away from that I always come away with is like party and stars was making so much money. Why did you not invest in lobbyists in DC when the shit was going down so that what happened could have been prevented and would not have happened because it has stifled poker innovation. It has stifled poker growth over time. It has stifled the ability to get more inclusive of you know female poker players and just humans in general to get involved in this game by removing access to online poker i mean you know i'm in atlanta there is no legal and regulated way that i can play cards online i've got to take my chances with an unregulated site which is fine because whatever i live in a gray area and like i don't like that actually like what's funny is i my whole life is a gray area that I've never been comfortable with living in. Like, I don't want to go to the bank and get a question that like, why do I have this $3,000 check from Singapore 
Like, why am I trying to put it in my bank account? What do I do for a living? Like, I just feel icky and gross and like having to lie and mislead. And I'm like, I just want to show up, do my job, get paid, pay taxes and move on with life. But like, it's not the world that we live in. And hopefully one day in the future, we can have regulation and legalization across the majority of states in the United States. I don't think it's going to happen at a federal level, but maybe it can happen on a state-to-state level. Sort of like the lottery, right? Once states kind of see the revenue that it can generate and it being like an entry point to whatever it is the states want to do, run online gaming or just whatever thing it is. I mean, it's like absurd to me that there is a lottery and online poker is not accessible. Like I can buy a scratch off, but I can't go play online cards. Right. But, you know, that's a problem that isn't going to be solved. I wish it would have been solved 15 years ago, but it's the world we live in. Um, Have to accept it now, I think. Let's see. What's your current big goal? What are you currently striving for in the world of poker? Honestly, to sell as many copies of my book as possible. I am hoping to do that. Um, I'm working with some organizations. I just signed on with a World College Poker, which will be about college um, students coming into poker. That's really exciting to me. I'm working with Poker Power. That's really cool. Um, But personally, um, I would love, love, love to get my book out there. Why? Why Why does it mean so much to you to sell copies of this book? Because I really, you know, this is the book that I would have liked. And I think that it's so beginner friendly. And poker if you don't, most people learn how to play poker from somebody else, right? Whether you're a guy or a girl, you learn from a friend, your dad, your mom, if she's cool, you know, whoever you learn poker from another person. And if you didn't know somebody or you weren't in circles, like your fraternity that played poker, then you were kind of SOL. And so I wanted that book to substitute as that like friend, that person, that guide, that mentor Because for me, that's what's missing in the poker world is uh, an easy access point. Is that entrance. And so that was the mission of the book. It's not necessarily to like, you know, make you a pro player, but it's how can I, you know, get comfortable playing at a one-two game. And I'll know what one-two, what what it means when it says a one-two game. And I can, you know, uh, I, I can have that cheat sheet. Yeah, that's a that's a great eye for seeing a problem that hasn't been addressed very well in poker training. I myself have been thinking about this problem a lot lately because I launched a program maybe two months ago called Preflop Bootcamp. And it was like the first thing that I, I thought, okay, everybody needs to understand preflop strategy. Like every hand starts preflop. This is like yep. the beginning of the decision tree. You can avoid so many mistakes down the line, deeper in the decision tree by just having a strong preflop game. This is where we start. And it includes like 65 ranges. This is six max. So 65 ranges over the course of like five days that everybody just kind of crams. And it's like fully immersive team group learning um, the preflop ranges. And what I learned was that is not the starting point to playing poker. There are things that you need to know before that. And I learned that by having folks who were at the very beginning of their poker journey 
that had joined preflop bootcamp at like the suggestion of one of my students, right? Like they want to play poker. They want to learn. This is a great entry point. And even concepts starting preflop were too advanced. And so like, I've had to learn and I've had to learn now, like I need to go back. I need to like make some short videos and have these like entry point courses or entry point products that are designed around teaching people like what is a range? What are what is a combination of hands? You have 12 combinations of offsuit and four combination of suited hands and like just how all these things interact with each other so that they can see why the strategy is constructed in the way that it is. And when you get the why of it, you're you know, you can navigate logically through the process a little better and figure out what you ought to do even if you don't have the strategy memorized. But yeah, I hundred percent in agreement. And it's really, it's a really hard thing to see when you've been playing cards for like 15 years, because you know, the curse of knowledge, like you just know too much that you just assume other people are starting like at a level that's similar to what you have in mind. Um, so basically through market research and feedback, I've learned like simpler, shorter, videos for starters are a thing that is missing in the world of poker and there's a big demand for it too because lots of people want to learn how to play and the training just begins it to a of an advanced level it's prohibitive exactly um you know i it's like i'm trying to like redesign it right now so i took it down but um as a pitch as plugged in my book you know i made a beginner's poker training site and I knew that like the preflop charts were too hard. So I just have like quizzes and it'll be hands and it just says player fold, generally speaking. Generally speaking, and the, just the idea that Jack seven suited, you generally fold it. King, queen, you generally play. Player fold, player fold. Like that's a start off, right? And then before I even introduce positions, then the next quiz is like mostly play, mostly fold, right? And then I was... um so some of my classes, I'll like show my quizzes and we'll like use them as like a, a training guide. And I made quizzes even just for your first time at a casino. And all the women are like absolutely shocked. They're like, like I guess, you know, I'll say, you know, you sit down at a table and the dealer says, waiter post, what do you do? And everyone freezes up. Right. And they have no idea. Or I even say, you know, like when you go. Do you just sit down? You know, people think it's like roulette where you just walk up to the table when you actually have to be put on a list. Like there's so much before, way before you're getting to pre-flop and what the cards are. And um, yes, I created my own little module too, but it was a little bit difficult to run and to promote and stuff. So it's kind of on a hiatus now. Maybe I'll recharge it, but uh, I can completely relate. Um, It's frustrating because I felt like you know, I spent forever making it and making all these quizzes and making them fun and easy and just, I feel really good about them. Uh, But the difficulty is how do you promote poker to people that that's a blind spot for them? People that never, you know, that weren't even thinking of Googling, learn how to play poker, especially women. Uh, So for me, that was, that has been (laughs) the the challenge is uh, the promotional aspect. Hopefully, they read your book 
And that is the entry point to finding the rest of the content through the book so that they recognize there's a problem and there's things that they need to learn and there's a place for them to go. I did check out your website, by the way. I am jealous that it looks so much better than mine, which makes me feel really sad about myself. Um, <laughs> I have a, your website looks so professionally well done. Mine Thank is you. like, yeah, mine's a mess. You're welcome. I did it all myself, so. Uh, yeah, that Thank makes you. me feel better. Sorry, no, no, sorry, no, I'm just, it was a labor of love. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, mine's you. a labor of love. I just have horrible design skills as one of my students who's a rock star designer tells me every chance he gets that I got to redo my website. So that's coming. It's a priority over the next couple of weeks. And by the time this episode drops, hopefully that'll be done and I'll be more proud of my website. But I did check yours out. It looks great. Very well put together. Um, And I guess that'll segue to the last question of where can the Chasing Poker Greatness audience find you on the World Wide Web? Yeah, so I have um, a blog about kind of the pitching and promotional process of my book. It's called makemeabestsellerbook.com. Um, also follow me on uh, Twitter. It's pretty good. Uh, my name is my my name, Amanda Botfeld, A-M-A-N-D-A-B-O-T-F-E-L-D. Um, occasionally I'll write articles for like uh, Card Player Lifestyle or uh, Cards Chat. I'm a contributor there. So my poker articles, a journey, find me on Twitter at Amanda Botfeld, B-O-T-F-E-L-D. There is no I. Feld, not field. <laughs> and your book, last plug for the book. Yeah. What about it? What's the name? Where do you find it? Where oh, do my book. My book. Oh, where do you find my book? My book is called A Girl's Guide to Poker by Amanda Botfeld. Or Girl's Guide to Poker by Amanda. That's easier. Um, you can find it on Amazon. You can find it on Barnes and Noble right now. It's being restocked on Amazon, but you can still order it. Um, and it's also available as an ebook. That's not bad that it's being restocked. That means somebody must have bought it. So yeah, yeah. It's sold out in the little, in the first, um, small run here. So it's being restocked, which is exciting. Awesome. And all of those links are going to be on the show page. So when you're done listening to this episode, just click right through, buy the book, support, Amanda, in her her poker journey, let's make poker accessible to more human beings around the world. This is a thing that poker needs. Poker needs an influx of human beings playing this great game. I mean, just a consistent stream of human beings. Thank you very much for your time and your energy. I've really enjoyed it. And uh, I'll talk to you. You know, we'll do a round two in a couple of years or maybe a year. Who knows? Sometime. Whenever you write your next book. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Chasing Poker Greatness. If you have yet to subscribe to the show, please take a second to do so on Apple Podcasts or wherever your favorite place to listen to podcasts may be. For more content from me, Coach Brad, please visit our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash enhance your edge, and I'll see you next time.